This evening, continuing on in a certain sense from where Annie left off with her last uh, Adama talk, she left off at the end um, talking a little bit about compassion. And this evening I'd like to continue talking about compassion, expanding upon it, and uh, I'll be talking about it also again tomorrow. It'll be two evenings uh, exploring compassion. There's an image in Buddhism that represents the awakened energy of unconditional, boundless compassion. It's an image of a figure that's often depicted as having a thousand arms outstretched and a thousand eyes. An eye painted in the palm of each hand that's reaching out. A thousand eyes seeing all the suffering in the world and a thousand arms reaching out to help. A number of years ago now, I attended a retreat with Thich Nhat Hanh, and there were about 400 adults present, and also there were 30 children attending the retreat. The children were off each day um, having their own retreat, but every morning they would come in and do a show and tell uh, uh, for all of us adults before we began our retreat day. Each morning they would stand up in front of us and in various ways share what they had uh, been doing and learning uh, during the previous day. One morning all of the 30 children came into the meditation tent and stood in a long line silently facing the 400 adults. And then each child stretched out both of their arms with the palms facing the 400 of us adults. And in the palm of each uh, child's hand was painted an eye. And then one little boy went up on the platform uh, where Thich Nhat Hanh was sitting and painted an eye in one of Thich Nhat Hanh's, the palm of one of Thich Nhat Hanh's pa- uh, hands. And that was the whole of their pre- presentation to us that morning, that silent presentation, which was very touching and inspiring and quite beautiful. So compassion, karuna in Pali. What is it experientially? About 43 years ago now, early one June morning, I heard the wake-up stirrings of one of my newly born twin sons. Holding him that morning with a very sweet tenderness between us as he lay open-eyed and relaxed and quite contented and my eyes looking very deeply into his face with a kind of wonderment and curiosity and I suddenly felt my heart tremble, quiver 
the vibration permeating my chest, my heart center, and then moving on through my whole body and in through my mind as well. A feeling of connection, a feeling of intimacy with him and with life as a force, we could say. Immediately interwoven with these moments was a very deep sense that this tiny being would experience many difficult things in his life. Difficult situations and many bodily and mental experiences, difficult experiences within himself. A wave of the breadth of the suffering the suffering in our lives in his life or the, that, that seemed was going to be in his life literally quivered through me in the midst of those moments of sweetness and beauty that early June morning and some tears came as well but not the aching tears of sadness that come with the feeling of attachment That morning the tears were more like the juice of compassion. That, that yes, this is how it will be for him. And how it is for all of us. That morning's experience has returned in many, many, many times and in many ways as both a teaching and as a practice for me within the enormous space of gratitude that living life immersed in the Dhamma brings. The Buddha described compassion as the trembling, the quivering of the heart in response to pain, in response to suffering ours or that of another being. Compassion is the heartbeat of the Buddha's teaching, we could say. It's one of the two wings with which we learn to fly free. The wing of wisdom. The wing of deeply understanding the not-self, the empty nature of all things. And the other wing, the wing of compassion, the heart's connection to beings that comes through a deep understanding of dukkha, a deep understanding of suffering, the cycle of unsatisfactoriness that runs through most of our lives. Understanding this, knowing its cause, and knowing the way of its end. Because meditation practice has the power to clear away, to purify mental obscurations, states of mind that constrict, that bind the heart, that bind the mind, practice makes us actually more keenly aware and more sensitive to the suffering in this world. How can we bring our deepening sensitivity our 
new awareness, so to say, of dukkha into our practice? How can we bring it into this path of liberation? Our practice is grounded in mindfulness and investigation. Mindfulness and the clear discrimination of states of body, mind, and heart. Connecting with whatever arises, seeing it clearly. It also must be grounded in the non-judgmental acceptance that the heart of metta offers us. A mind, a heart that's steeped in metta is what allows for the connection of mindfulness to take place in relationship to whatever arises. The blossoming of this very important capacity along with this training of the heart, the mind, is intimately involved with our growing capacity to compassionately, mindfully meet and clearly see the difficult. Compassionately and wisely meet and understand the suffering that shows up in our lives. Compassion is a very tender, open state. And at the same time, it's a place of great strength within us. So tenderness, openness, and strength. The capacity to be with and stay present with whatever is happening in our body, our mind, our heart, the continuum of all of it, and with what's going on around us. And not feel overwhelmed by it. And so we gently, we gently practice maintaining our awareness of suffering. I think most of us are quite strongly conditioned to sweep discomfort, to sweep dis-ease under the rug, hide it away in the metaphoric closet or attic or basement. Or we hide ourselves away by shutting off, by going to sleep, or by distracting ourselves in various ways. Or possibly through even ignoring or trivializing suffering. So that we don't see, we don't feel the pain of others. Or that we don't see or feel our own pain, our own suffering. Our conditioned habits of avoidance and distraction are all based in fear. The fear that if we really recognize, connect with, and open to this pain, it will touch too deeply and maybe cause us even more discomfort, more anguish, and maybe even unbearable pain. The aim of compassion, the aim of karuna practice is to begin to turn our capacity for unconditionally accepting with great care, which is metta. To turn it specifically, begin to turn it specifically towards suffering in relationship to ourselves and in relationship to others. 
to connect with courage, to open to, to genuinely care, and then move towards the alleviation of suffering. Through the purification of the heart, of the mind, that practice offers us, with great patience, the learning of great patience, we learn over time to do this without getting overwhelmed by the suffering. But rather we begin to feel that the very clear strength of our courage and our care, which gives us the necessary and the wholesome energy to act on our own behalf or on the behalf of others. Cultivating the heart of metta and karuna, along with the discipline of developing mindful awareness and investigation, a whole new realm of choices and insights become available to us. We meet and accept what is, which again is the essence of mindfulness based in kindness based in metta and then in whatever ways might be appropriate we're able to help without any aspect of aversion creating a barrier true compassion or boundless compassion as it's often spoken of is when we have the capacity to open our heart to the suffering of all beings ourself included and in our mind not make others or ourself in any way more important than each other compassion is neither strained nor is it reactive it flows from the heart with the capacity to transform fear transform anger transform resentment, disappointment, grief, or expectation that might be present in relationship to another or in relationship to our own bodily or mental experiences. With the development and the blossoming of compassion, we're cultivating an immeasurable impartiality what Chogyam Trumpa described as a pure and fearless openness without territorial limitation. Metaphorically, it's like one moon shining in the sky while its image is reflected in every body and drop of water on this earth. The moon doesn't demand, if you open to me, I'll shine on you. I'll do you a favor and shine on you. The moon just simply shines. The point here is not to want to benefit anyone or to try to make them happy. Because in truth, there's no audience. There's no audience involved. There's no me, no you. No me, no them. It's really a matter of an open gift, compassionate generosity, we could call it. 
without the relative notions of giving and receiving or trying to make some kind of an impression. And this is a quote from Desmond Tutu from South Africa. Africans believe in something that is difficult to render in English. We call it Ubuntu Boto. It means the essence of being human. You know when it's there and when it's absent. It speaks about humanness, gentleness, hospitality, putting yourself out on the behalf of others, being vulnerable. It embraces compassion and toughness. It recognizes that my humanity is bound up in yours, for we can only be human together. Compassion has the power to melt, the power to dissolve the separation between self and other. To dissolve the separation in the direct experience of our body, mind, and heart. In an open-hearted and yet an impersonal and non-identified way. It's our clinging to the idea of self, our deeply habituated thought of a separate, solid, static self that perpetuates this often painful separation, or as it's sometimes called, duality. Compassion has the power to dissolve or to counteract the uneasiness, the discomfort, the contraction or the withdrawal in the face of others or our own pain and suffering so that we're honestly and truly present with them and with ourselves. How different this is from the reactive patterns of anger, fear, resentment, judgment, unhealthy grief, jealousy, greed, I think most of us usually think of mental states, emotional states, as being positive or negative. As our understanding deepens through our practice, we begin to know that the most important and helpful and really true way of seeing and knowing mental states is the difference between reaction and response. Reaction or reaction is always based on the past, on past conditioned patterns that are rooted in an agenda. Patterns and agendas that are always associated with I, with me, with mine. And so consequently really aren't connected to and don't serve the immediacy the reality of our present moment experience or the more expansive scope of any particular given situation. Reaction or reaction always supports and recreates our particular karmic predicament. It reifies our habitual thoughts, actions, actions, 
or self-identification as this is who I am. Compassion is a response. It's not a reaction. Compassion is a response. It's not a reaction. There's a story about uh, the Zen master Ryokan whose uh, brother invited him to visit his house and uh, particularly invited him to speak to his delinquent son, Ryokan's nephew. And of course Ryokan went. But throughout the visit he didn't say any words at all of admonishment to the boy. He stayed overnight and the next morning as he was preparing to leave his wayward nephew was sitting on the ground uh, helping Ryokan lace up his straw sandals. And the boy felt a drop of uh, warm water touch his hand. And he glanced up at his uncle Ryokan, who was looking down at him uh, with eyes that were full of tears, overflowing with tears. Ryokan returned home, and his nephew, uh, uh, his uh, brother, uh, told him that it was not soon, uh, not long after Ryokan's visit, uh, that his uh, his son, Ryokan's nephew, changed for the better. So a response, a very simple and yet very powerful response in both directions. Compassion training, the practice and the unfolding of karuna. Compassion training is often difficult. It means that we uh, take to heart the Buddha's words, I teach one thing and one thing only. Suffering and the end of suffering. And of course, as we all know by now, The Buddha wasn't about to go on and tell us the best way to suffer. We're all very well practiced in that. Nor, of course, was he recommending suffering. He was, though, actually pointing out that suffering, unsatisfactoriness, confusion, anguish, is intrinsic to our human condition. Or at least it's intrinsic until we wake up to the true nature of life, to the true nature of things. What he was doing was pointing out the truth of its existence and that looking directly, deeply and honestly at the reality of suffering in our lives is what leads us to take the necessary steps to free ourselves from it which in turn leads to the transformation and the relinquishment of the mental states that cause us so much anguish. With this letting go, this relinquishment, leading us on little by little to the end of suffering, which eventually 
leads us to the complete liberation, the complete ending of suffering. During the monsoon season that we have here in Taos, um, usually late summer and very early fall, there are often appearing huge uh, arcs of rainbows, often double rainbows. And rainbows can be really good teachers. A rainbow appears because of very particular conditions coming together. There's just the right amount of moisture in the atmosphere, and the light at that moment is just right. And then, of course, one has to be in the right place at the right time and looking in the right direction. And it all changes very, very quickly. Everything in life, including what we think of as ourself, all of our experiences of body and mind, are like a rainbow. Merely a changing set of conditions that are totally interrelated, totally contingent, and empty in and of themselves. It's quite obvious with rainbows, but not so for most of us with the more solidly appearing phenomena, the both, both the mental and the physical phenomena, our rainbow body, our rainbow mind. The suffering of grasping on, of holding tight to some appearing thing and then solidifying it and identifying it as mine as me as who I think I am be it material objects ideas, opinions beliefs, a memory an emotional state or a bodily experience thinking of any of these things as in any way permanent and unchanging and identifying them as me, as mine, as I, will inevitably bring confusion and some degree of anguish. Trying to control or trying to grasp on to events, trying to control or grasp on to any moments of this constantly changing life, with the nature of it all being uncontrollable, ungovernable, ungraspable, will inevitably bring suffering. It's our relationship to phenomena that brings the suffering, the particular kind of suffering that the Buddha speaks about being free from. As we practice, We find that we give mindful attention to the particular objects that come into awareness. We find that these objects, in fact, don't really change very much. And by this I mean that basically we keep attending to the same, pretty much the same 
body-mind objects over and over and over again. It's our relationship to them that changes. And so we find out something kind of amazing and fortunate, actually, about suffering. That it itself is a conditional, totally contingent aspect of life. It's not an absolute. As our practice takes deeper root and as it begins to mature, we begin to see and to know that liberation from suffering isn't based on anything imaginary, pretended, hoped for, wished for, philosophized about, avoided, or ignored. We can't be free from something that we don't see. We can't be free from something that we ignore. In our English language, there's an aphorism that tells us ignorance is bliss. In the clarity of the Buddha's teaching, ignorance isn't bliss. Ignorance is simply ignorance, and bliss is simply bliss. With, in fact, ignorance providing the fertile ground for delusion to sprout. But fortunately, ignorance and delusion are only impermanent, conditioned states of suffering. They're not who we are. They're just one of the hues of the ephemeral rainbow. This is a piece uh, called The Myth of Sisyphus. It's Stephen Mitchell's version of the Greek myth of Sisyphus. We tend to think of Sisyphus as a tragic hero, condemned by the gods to shoulder his rock sweatily up the mountain, and again up the mountain forever. The truth is that Sisyphus is in love with the rock. He cherishes every roughness and every ounce of it. He talks to it, sings to it. It has become the mysterious other. He even dreams of it as he sleepwalks upward. Life is unimaginable without it, looming always above him like a huge gray moon. He doesn't realize that at any moment He's permitted to step aside, let the rock hurtle to the bottom, and go home. As we begin to see clearly, and at least occasionally, step aside, as we continue to climb the mountain of wisdom and compassion, letting the heavy rock of our maybe cherished habits and our identities just simply hurtle to the bottom, so to say, we're less and less often habitually, blindly, 
caught and trapped in old patterns of suffering and old patterns of a suffering relationship to life. The capacities of unconditional kindness, metta, compassion, mindful awareness, and wisdom begin to take root and to grow. Our heart begins to open. And we're really, truly beginning to awaken. This is a part of a letter I'd like to share with you that I received from a very dear friend of mine. Just had an insight about compassion recently. You might know my niece has been living with me for the past year. I've had lots of conflicting emotions about this. Resenting it, irritated, wanting her to leave, but something holding me back from actually telling her that. I recently realized it's compassion. Compassion for a kind of young, wounded soul that I'm following through on. Compassion, I think, is bound up with integrity. I realize that I let all my conflicting feelings and issues take over. I would be compromising my integrity, my understanding and belief about the importance of compassion. Sometimes acting with compassion is hard work because it requires us to let go of limiting behaviors. So I'm still feeling some of those feelings, but feel very clear about my course of action. And she ends this part of her letter. Life can be so rich and challenging in all of its connections to friends, parents, and children. heart's capacity for compassion and our inclination to cultivate compassion, where does this come from? The seeds of compassion within each of us have been planted many, many times. Every time we experienced another being who was willing to be with us when we've been in pain, every time we've been cared for, attended to, listened to, or just simply sat with when we've been sick or hurting physically or when we've been in some emotional distress. The seeds of compassion were sown. In any moment of the purity of a compassionate connection, relationship is transformed by cutting through the me-you, the subject-object dualism. As is metta, compassion is a unifying energy. The giver and the receiver are joined, not separate, in any moment of pure presence. These moments hold and carry a particular energy of the heart, the particular energy of compassion in this case, and plant the seed of this energy 
in the receiver. And for most of us, this happens many, many times throughout our life. And so we have many, many seeds to cultivate through our practice. And of course, we in turn plant many seeds. Every time we remain present with another being who's suffering, who's in pain physically or emotionally, a seed of compassion is planted and the seed of karuna in our own heart grows as well it's watered and fertilized and it grows every time we wholesomely respond rather than react both internally and outwardly to a difficult or painful set of circumstances a seed of compassion is planted and the seeds of karuna within our own heart grow. And sometimes the learning curve can be quite steep. The emotional or physical pain facing us from another or within ourselves asks us to step into an unfettered, compassionate relationship. And this can take us to the very core of our being. Even to the very core of what might be our subtle, self-centered agenda. The agenda that props up the veil of a subtle or maybe not so subtle separation, duality that we've been living behind. Maybe forever. These learning curves that come our way every once in a while hold the amazing possibility for us to recognize and to let go of the habitual knots that bind us, which in turn offers us the truly amazing possibility of an unfettered, compassionate connection with another and with ourselves as well. Looking at it this way, the interaction within every relationship has the potential of planting a seed for the arising of a clear and true presence within both beings. The interaction within every relationship has the potential of transmission. It's a circular kind of process. We receive the seeds of compassion as a transmission and we give the transmission to others and also, again, to ourselves through acts of compassion. And on it goes, the spiraling transmission of karuna. For me, and I think for many others, an amazing and inspiring contemporary embodiment and transmitter of compassion has been Mother Teresa. In a video about her life that some of you may have seen, it's a video about her life and her work. 
there's a short scene in this video where she stops by the bed of a man who's been brought in off the street. This man is extremely sick and extremely emaciated. And she gets down very close to him, gets down on the floor very close to him and looks directly into his eyes. And just then, then after, just simply puts her hand on his chest, her, her hand on his chest over his heart. And he looks directly back at her. And for those few moments, the appearance of the enormous suffering in his face changes. It changes completely. It changes into light and love. A few moments of a gentle and yet very powerful transmission. With the heart of compassion, there's a great strength and trust in our ability to bear witness and face whatever it is, to be with what is, without wanting to make it disappear, without ignoring it or repressing it or pretending that something else is happening. Aversion to pain, our pain or the pain of another, says, I can't stand this. I can't be near it. I can't bear this feeling. It's very, very important when this comes up in the mind, when this comes up in the heart, to connect to the aversion with a mindful awareness that's based in the non-judgmental connection of the heart of metta. Meeting the reactive states of mind, the reactive pattern that's arising, meeting it with an open-hearted mindfulness. This is the attention that connects. This is how it is right now. This is fear. This is anger. This is what's happening in the moment. This is how it is. That simple possibility of connection. It's very important to recognize our limits. To recognize our limits without self-judgment. However they might show up in the process of the cultivation of compassion. Karuna is never developed through force. Never is it developed through force. It's appropriate and it's natural to back off from painful experience at times in our practice, at times in our life. Kindness, gentleness with ourself is an important and very necessary aspect of our practice. This itself is metta. This itself is karuna. It's important to stay mindful in the moving away from and coming close to, the opening to and the withdrawal that happens in relationship to mental, physical, or situational pain that's showing up. As it is with any object 
that we give mindful attention to in our practice. Our perception of the object will change as we see it more and more clearly. And consequently, our relationship to the object will also change. So clearly recognizing, seeing and knowing the nature of this changing relationship to things, to our experience, is also a very important aspect of our practice. We need to learn to befriend ourselves and to understand our own suffering. To come close and see how it is. To see how it really is. It may be a strong and intense energy, but it's not at all static. It's not at all solid. Can we come so close with the great intimacy of our practice to see how it really is? There's fear. There's anger. There's a thought, a memory. There's discomfort in the body. Any of these appearances, any of these hues of the rainbow. Can we come so close, grounded in the heart connection of acceptance and with a growing compassion? to see how it is, to see the various colors of the rainbow of our experience, to see them truly in themselves, and begin to see through these colors, even the strongest of colors. If a really close friend comes to us with their troubles, their problems, their suffering, we most often, usually, we give them our attention. We give them our care in one way or another. We don't usually tell them to stop feeling what they're feeling or to tell them to get away from us in the midst of their suffering. As we learn to befriend ourselves and understand our own suffering, our connection with all beings quite naturally grows and develops. We come to really know, to really, really know that the pain in our back, the pain in our heart, essentially isn't different than the pain in the heart or the back of any other being anywhere in this world. And again, a most important thing to remember in our formal practice and in our life as our practice is to come from a place of honesty, humility, and respect in recognizing our limitations. Recognizing our capacity of heart at any given point along the way and not pretend, not pretend anything to ourselves or to others by maybe imitating or acting out of some idealized image that we might have of a loving, compassionate person. And to not go on hold, so to say, in our practice with an agenda or with an expectation, 
waiting to have what we might think is the right or the perfect experience of compassion. The blossoming of compassion and insight, the blossoming of compassion and wisdom depends on us coming from a genuine place of heart. And I'd like to close uh, this part of the compassion exploration, this evening's compassion exploration, with a poem by Mary Oliver. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese, high in the clean blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. And let's sit together for just a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.